Hello and welcome to Better Words. My name is Caitlin and I'm just a bookish babe. And I'm Michelle and I'm from the Unfinished Bookshelf. And I have, I'm currently reading like seven books, but it's just <laughs> ones I've sort of started and put down. But I'm going to talk about two that I started on the weekend. We've been so bad for not talking about books lately. We have. We've kind of just been catching up and like forgetting that this is supposed to be, oh, this is what I'm bookish. reading and this is what I'm watching and yeah, so I went to the library last week because I had and like an RDO on Friday, a toil day, um, and I wanted to get some good reading done and I just wasn't really sure what to pick up off my bookshelf, which sounds so stupid, but I'm sure everyone knows exactly no, what I mean. I'm, yeah, I think everybody knows it. <laughs> we just like weren't sure. Like there's so many unread books, but wasn't quite sure about which ones I wanted to read. And I've, I've kind of been itching for ages to start a new series, so I went to the library and I actually got um, The Names They Gave Us by Emery Lord because I read The Start of Me and You late last year and I loved it. Actually, that might have been this year. We're in May. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so I got that one because an uh, author I loved, so I'm reading another one of her novels. Um, and I got Dorothy Must Die by Danielle Page, if I remember correctly, because... I love The Wizard of Oz. I love all the different adaptations of The Wizard of Oz and that sort of world. You know, there's been a few now, I guess. Um, and I've heard things that if you love Wicked the Musical that you won't really enjoy the series, the book series by Gregory Maguire. Um, mm. And I've seen the Dorothy Must Die series around, so I thought I'd give it a go. So I'm not very far into it, so I'm not sure how I feel yet. But... Yeah, that's what I'm reading. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to talk about a book too because I finally finished some books. Um, so I was the same. I was reading four books for a while yeah. and I'm still reading two of them um, and I haven't picked them up in ages, but I was reading I'll Be Gone in the Dark and Brooklyn and I finally finished them last week. Oh, so you finished Brooklyn now. I knew yeah. you finished I'll oh, Be Gone in the Dark. Yeah, so but... Brooklyn was really good. Um it is really beautiful and I think I'm, I do like the book better because it's more just story. more. Yeah. yeah, but, like, it's a sort of story where nothing really happens that much. Like, it's very much a character-driven, introspective sort of thing. I um, guess so. They definitely I, play I would up. kind of disagree with the nothing happens, though. No, well, I was just going to say they do play up the romance angle in the movie. Because oh, okay. what happens for most of the movie happens in the last, like, probably she didn't even meet um god now the I can't American remember. guy yeah what's his name is it I don't know Joe? Tony 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 I was Tony. like he's Italian he's Italian American <laughs> it's probably Tony 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 <laughs> pop star you watched that the other night oh my god um so yeah so that she doesn't even meet Tony until like the book's only tiny. It's only like 250 pages or something and she probably meets him about like 100 pages in. Oh, so, like, okay. the, the it's much more about her journey across the ocean, literally, yeah. and her Whereas settling into Batoches and America yeah. and Brooklyn and all that really happens and she goes through this massive period of homesickness before she even meets Tony, which is probably the main focus of the movie and so um the whole thing with going home takes place in like a, 
it's yeah like the last 50 pages it's oh, very very okay. quick compared to the rest of the novel and also a lot more time is um spent I don't, I don't want to say why she has to go home because it does sort of like it is a spoiler so the reason why she has to go home a lot more time is spent in Brooklyn reflecting on that okay but yeah it's just it's it's so in the book it sort of feels like nothing's really moving fast or anything more but I loved it Okay. Because because the character analysis and the character development is just so beautiful and I think a lot of people who've, anyone who's ever moved or had that sort of feeling where they are like unanchored and unmoored and just sort of adrift in the world mm. will surely relate to how she feels and that choice between choosing that new life that's like an adventure or just retreating to the safety of home because it's it's comforting so yeah. yeah it's very it's very interesting I still do love the movie but I do definitely have a soft spot for the book now and I think it's probably slightly better <laughs> I don't know they definitely play up the romance for the movie though which is fair enough yeah well I guess it's one of those things that's like you can't necessarily I... portray it in movies the same way you can in books yeah, this like this sort of yeah. self journey. Yeah, because you're not in someone's head. It's not the same of. way as like, yeah, being in their head in a narrative. Yeah, mm. and I guess um, you know we talked about Brooklyn in our adaptations episode, but I hadn't watched it then. Um, and I said to you that yes. I was going to wait to tell you what I thought of the movie until you'd finished reading the book, and we could yes. like mention it again on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, I. I guess I did like the the story in the movie and it was very beautiful and everything and I liked it all and everything. But um, I guess, you know, what the movie is more about is the this life or that life mm. and that does include this man or that man. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything, but I had very strong opinions about this, I guess, the way that those relationships I guess um, I just saw the men. And are managed. I just, I, cause I, I, I feel like she does some wrong things, but that's, no, I don't want to. See, I feel like, I feel like the men are very much just a metaphor for. Oh, they definitely yeah, are. Like I feel. And so definitely, I don't know. I think it's when you read the book, it's definitely easier to understand how the stuff that happens in Ireland happens because you can understand what sort of character she is. So in the book, she just sort of gets stuck staying there and um it's sort of like oh well I, I don't want to say anything now because like it, it's gone this far and yeah. you know how you convince yourself so yeah. I feel like in the book there was a lot more of it probably her. makes a lot more sense than it does, it does in the movie yeah. because it was a bit odd but yeah so yeah. Then, but then in the movie it sort of feels like she deliberately is just like oh well don't worry about Tony um mm. but in the book it's sort of she explains that like as soon as she isn't there anymore Brooklyn feels like this strange dream world that she doesn't even believe sort of happens so yeah. it's very and she doesn't open and this is the other thing is it's set in the 1950s so she doesn't open his letters so she basically it's like he doesn't exist like yeah it's it's very easy for her to convince herself that the right thing to, and the other thing is like her mum is alone as well so that idea of do I stay with my mother and I mean, after her yeah, the whole story, no matter what way you look at it, is like this or that. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. It's tough, but I, they they definitely don't explore that quite. It's like I feel like she's much more justified in her decisions in the book because you can see she's just 
and she's so young as well. Like she's probably like our age. And can you imagine though back then the idea of going to like it took her a week to get from America to England and vice versa, sorry, to Ireland and vice versa. Mm. And like can you imagine being so young and naive and from a tiny little village in Ireland and then going to New York? Like it would just be incredible like you're going from such a closed little tiny community especially back then where they they probably knew like I'm pretty sure in the books like she just knows nothing about what she's doing she's just told there's a job for you go there basically yeah exactly because doesn't like so different like the the village priest or something has Mm -hmm. arranged for like other girls to go which sounds so dodgy doesn't it like it does but it's literally what happened so he would he had a friend who was a priest in a in Brooklyn who would Mm -hmm. set them up with a job and everything and find them a nice Irish place to board. And exactly, yeah, like with this yeah. family or whatever. It seems, yeah. Yeah. It really, it's almost crazy that that happened, um, you know, because like obviously that was a common thing that happened mm. to people, you know, moving to America or even moving to Australia. Moving to Australia, you know, moving lots internationally of people for like moving new to life. Australia. Yeah, and um, they just never go back. Yeah, and yeah. that was like 65 years ago which is not that long. Yeah, like actually this is like real, relatively it's quite recent history and it's just, yeah. I mean, surely like we're very, like we're diverging a lot now, but like the last century so much stuff has happened, like so many inventions. That, like I know. It's gone from the fact that you have like ships and stuff to like Communic- literally just being able to fly and oh, Communication it's technology alone is a st- like yeah incredible. and the fact that you go from like Did a whole steam trains oh really communication yeah it was called like technology communication and culture or something oh. so it did I did like an assignment where I interviewed my grandmother about like the mm. um you know the way she's used technology like the way it's changed when she was being raised you know like and as a child mm. to then raising her own children because I mean that's going from like let me do the math here. Going from like the well, your fifties, your family's like uh-huh. relatively young, so but like she was being raised like in the fifties, mm. and then raising her children in the seventies and eighties, which is you know even that is a huge jump it is. to then you know she obviously interacts with her grandchildren in mm. the what do we call this decade, the teens? I don't know. So yeah, it's I don't all know. the yeah. new millennium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. But it's very interesting. This yeah. is a little interesting it is. sidetrack. Was anyway, there that wasn't even the book I was going to talk about. Oh, wasn't it? <laughs> no. Oh, well, now you I don't have much time say, to talk about the other one. <laughs> I was going to say, well, I've only just started it too. So I, um, I was just going to say that I started reading The Loneliest Girl in the Universe by Lauren James, which Grace Latter, our lovely Grace, um, made me buy in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. Um, She's like, this is amazing. And I'd read Lauren's other two books, The Next Together and The Last Beginning. So so you don't sound too sure. I I don't don't sound too sure because they sound sort of similar. And I know the first one is The Next Together and I think the next one is The Last Beginning. Like they just, they sound quite similar. Anyway, they're really cool. You know I don't like sci-fi, but hers are like time-travelling, it's I, so awesome. I don't really like sci-fi either, but I do like time travel. It's so good. I can get into time yeah. travel. Well, I didn't think I'd like sci-fi, but I'm reading a book set on a spaceship. So that is, you know, a new That's one for me. pretty good sci-fi. Yeah. I don't actually think I've read any other spaceship books ever. Did you ever That's watch um, Silver Sun? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I watched that show. I mean, that was just like a 
There was another one with like a dog as well. A dog in space, something like that. No, you're. That's not ringing bells with me. It's like a cartoon dog in space. Hmm. I've got a vague memory of it. Okay, no, very, you very might vague. have to give me a bit more clues before that rings a bell. But um, Silver <laughs> but Sun yes, is I the did first watch one Silver I Sun. <laughs> Wasn't a massive fan just because I never liked space stuff. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I still quite. This like is it. really good. So the premise is that this girl is on a spaceship which was sent out to to find Earth Two because we've royally screwed the planet. Um, cool. It's set only like forty years in the future. I say only because it's not that that long. Yeah, well, we've just talked yeah. about the recent history. Thing, so yeah, that's and okay. I mean, we know the way the world is going. Mm. Um, so, but something happens when she's on there. So her parents weren't meant to get, weren't meant to have her. Um, they were meant to just watch the ship um, and watch the colony of astronauts that were on it that were like in like like a sleep state um, until they got to the planet. But something went wrong. That didn't work. She was born. And then everybody else died, seemingly. I don't know how yet. Like, that's probably going to be revealed. But everyone else died and she's the only girl on this ship. And it starts with Earth letting her know that they've sent another ship that's going to catch up with her and then propel them even faster to Earth 2. And then she loses all communication with Earth and she only has communication with the other guy on this ship. And that's what's happening. And I love oh, it. Wow, that it's, sounds really good. Cool. It's really good. And it's so fast paced because it's mostly told through emails and stuff and then like little snippets of things, which is the same with um, Lauren's other books, which were so fast and easy to read because they're just full of snippets, kind of like Illuminate Files, even though I haven't read it, but I know that that's how the storytelling yes, is done. The format of Illuminate is I mean, crazy it's amazing. It's probably not. It the, still took me a little. Uh, it still took me a while to read the first one. Yeah, no, it's probably not as out there as Illuminate because yeah. there are still bits of narrative in there Part where of, it's like back in her yeah her narrative, but it does count down. So like the, each chapter is like days until the eternity arrives. That's the name of the second spaceship. And it'll be like, I did this, blah, 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 talk about her feeling, and then it, it'll be like um, email or communication or whatever. But I, I just love it because it's I'm, I only started it on Sunday night and I'm already um, – actually, no, I started on Friday night after I came back and finished Brooklyn after we had ice cream. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I started it then and I've had a pretty busy weekend and I'm already like halfway through it because I'm just cool. racing through it. So, yeah. I probably talked too much about that, but it's very fun. Yeah, so, well, that sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, there we go. This We've has been an entirely bookish chat. It's great. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> books and history and, you know, just all these other random yeah, things. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. It's kind of fitting that I mentioned Lauren James last, though, because she is a British author, and you're about to listen to our awesome interview with someone who is very passionate about British literature. So enjoy. Joining us this week is a writer and podcast host whose move from England to America was partly inspired by an obsession with the West Wing. Our guest was long listed for the Bath Novel Award and her journalism, poetry and essays have appeared in a wide variety of publications, including Bustle, Book Riot, Writers Forum and the Washington Post. She is the host of the Brit Lit podcast and is publishing her debut novel through crowdfunding platform Unbound. Welcome to Better Words, Claire Hanscombe. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us from from 
across the seas. Yes, across <laughs> the world. Yeah. yeah. Isn't the internet wonderful? <laughs> it is. It really is. <laughs> I mean, you must find that too with like obviously not living in Britain anymore and doing a podcast about British li- literature, you must find that that's um, I guess how you do most of your interviews is over the internet. Yeah, over Skype. Um, I'm not a morning person, so that can be a challenge because of the time difference. Uh, Most people are like, are you sure you can't do 2 p.m.? I'm like, well, I mean, 9 a.m. I should be able to do that, but I don't know if I'll be awake enough. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. So we were just talking before we started recording about the fact that it's 7 a.m. here in Australia and Caitlin and I were both a bit like still sleepy. So now we don't feel so bad about that. I don't feel bad. I'd still be asleep, not just sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's talk about the podcast and, and why you started it. Yeah, so I write for a site called Book Riot, which I'm thinking some of your listeners know. Um, It's an American-based website that talks about books, but not in a book review kind of way, more um, in a fun, non-fusty way. So like, you know, 10 books to read on the beach or like um, some opinion piece about the latest Amazon shenanigans or just all kinds of things like that. And so I know quite a lot about the American book scene because I write for them and stuff. Um, And I was reading basically just American books. And I've lived in the US for five and a half years now. And I realized that I knew nothing about the British book scene. So um, basically, I took a deep dive one Christmas holiday, I sort of took a deep down, deep dive down the rabbit hole of the British book blogger scene and sort of got to know a bit about what's happening in the UK book wise and sort of Once I fell down that hole, I found lots of books and lots of news that was interesting and that I was kind of berating myself for not having known anything about. So that was basically my fall down the rabbit hole is what started the podcast in the end. So I feel like starting something just because you're passionate about it is probably the best way to go about it too. Yeah, I mean, that's what good, we did. <laughs> it's a pretty good foot to start on, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you, as I'm sure you know, podcasting takes quite a lot of time and energy and you, you've got to want to talk about the thing that you're talking about. Um, and I get to talk to a lot of my, my first few interviewers, interviewees were people that I, whose books I'd read and who I'd kind of befriended on Twitter because I'd love their books. So it was really easy to be in touch with them. And they, they had seen me raving about their books on the internet. So they were really happy to talk to me. And obviously that's great when you get to connect with an author whose book you've loved. So, yeah. It's basically exactly how we feel and exactly how we started it was just a bunch of people that Michelle had already interviewed on her blog, basically. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like the British book scene is quite similar to the Australian book scene in that it is, I guess, fighting against the American market that's so (laughs) popular and well-known and just accepted as the dominant market. And I don't know if you're familiar, Claire, with the hashtag LoveOzYA movement, but it's, um, I guess, something that grew out of the fact that there was a report that Um, in Australian libraries, there were only two books written by Australian authors 
that were the most borrowed by teens. So a bunch of authors got together and actually, well, it wasn't just authors. It was everyone. I remember doing it on the first day. It was authors and bloggers and readers on Twitter kind of getting together and talking about it. And it's become a real movement now. So I Mm -hmm. guess the same way you champion British literature, Mm -hmm. we like to champion Australian especially young adult literature but any Aussie books really because I yeah I feel like we're like both markets are sort of the underdogs yeah we're both just yeah. kind of against all the mass American things <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, there's a UKYA hashtag which is pretty active um yeah, I don't know if it came out of the same kind of idea but I'm pretty sure it probably did I know that one major issue for example is um UK publishing is very white um as is U.S. publishing compared to the pub, compared to the population as a whole, and mm. but U.K. publishers can pat themselves on the back, especially in YA, because they import American uh, writers of color, basically. And the U.K. YA community is like, no, that that doesn't count. You can't just like bring in people from other countries. We want you to bring diverse, you know, diverse writing from our own country, not from like across the ocean. So, yeah, it's definitely an issue. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what do you think it is that sets British writing apart from everything else, though? So I I feel there's a particular feel about an Australian book, and I'm sure it's Mm. the same for British. What do you think that that is? Yeah, that's ironically really hard to put into words sometimes. I think there's often a gentle humour running through British books, um, even when they're not particularly funny, even when they're kind of dire, actually, sometimes. Um, I'm reading a really good book at the moment called Dear Mrs. Bird, and it's set in the Second World War, and it's it's funny so far. And it's like um, amongst the kind of, you know, hardship and difficulty, this keep calm and carry on thing that we we're so famous for. I think a humor, humor has a lot to do with that. So there's maybe a bit of that. And um, yeah, it's, it's hard to know um, on a purely physical level, British books smell different from American books. Um, so I think we use different glue and different print or something, but they definitely, I did once when I landed back home a couple of years ago, ran straight to the bookshop to smell a book. So that was my, um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) a little bit sad, but there we go. (laughs) Oh, no, I love that. That's funny. It feels to me, at least in contemporary um, British books that I've read, that it's a lot. We've said before that it's grittier. Yeah, that UK way, especially like when we're talking about this, is grittier we feel than like Aussie YA I mean Aussie cliche, YA like Australians well too. are so like I mean we do the hard stuff as well mm. but like you know Australians <laughs> are so relaxed and laid back and that really mm-hmm. reflects I think through our yeah yeah I think it's the same reason that like for me the Brits do the best crime dramas because there's just this I guess sense of Oh, I can't even, I can't put it into words. It's hard. It's hard. (laughs) Well, our weather definitely helps with the grittiness. That's for sure. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Not enough sun. (laughs) We're feeling that at the moment. There's a cyclone like hovering off the coast of Queensland. So we haven't haven't seen sun for days and it's so strange. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not strange in England, sadly, but. So the move from England 
to America. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, it's actually funny. Your accent makes me really happy and I'm going to explain why because I grew up watching Neighbours and Home and Away um, and my first celebrity crush was Jason Donovan. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> so like many people my age in the UK or many women my age, I should probably say. Um, and um, so fast forward sort of 20 years and I got obsessed with a very different TV show, The West Wing. Um very different in subject matter and possibly in quality. <laughs> Don't want to offend anyone, but you know. Um, no, and um, <laughs> and I, when I was ten and obsessed with neighbours, I really wanted to visit Australia. I never, I haven't made it across yet. Hopefully one day. Um, but when I was thirty and obsessed with the West Wing, I had money and was able to book my own plane ticket. And so I visited the US, visited Washington DC specifically, fell in love with it. Um, and at the same time, the West Wing had made me want to write again. So I basically applied to do a master's in creative writing in DC. Um, and I moved here five and a half years ago to do that. And then I ended up getting a different visa after that and staying. So, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I love DC. It's a lovely place to live, actually, especially this time of year. It's spring here and it's like the weather hasn't been great, but it's just kind of everything's in bloom and it's beautiful. Well, that's lovely. It must be hard though, being away from your family and stuff. Yeah, it is hard. Um, a lot of my friends have small children, which would mean I wouldn't have a social life if I was back home, but it also is a bit sad that I'm not getting to know their babies and their toddlers and stuff. Um, my parents live in Portugal, so just to be more complicated, so I wouldn't see them all the time anyway. Um, but yeah, it's a long way. It's not as far as Australia, but it's it's far enough away that I can't just go home for the weekend from time to time, which honestly, if I could do that four times a year, I'd be set. But but you can't do that because of the time and the jet lag and the money and everything. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and moving to the US from Britain too, like I imagine it must have been a bit of a culture shock. Like I feel like Australia and and the UK are similar. relatively similar. Yeah, they're similar. But even when I went to the UK last year, there were so many little things that I was just like, oh, this mm-hmm. is so weird. Um, yeah. That but America just, must yeah. feel like a whole other world. <laughs> yeah, it really does. I. Um, yeah, it really does. I think that people assume because it's the same language and because right at the very beginning, it was a load of Brits that came over to America, but that we must be very similar, but really we're quite different. And in fact, the fact that we speak the same language probably makes it even more of a culture shock in a funny way because you don't expect it to be different. Um, yeah, I, get, I was about to say like between the sort of like the three of us, I mean like Australians, um, British Americans, like we all think that these other countries are going to be very similar to the ones that we call home, and they're not. We're actually quite far away from each other and fairly different. Yeah. Australia and yeah. UK are, I guess, similar in many ways. And I we feel are like we have the American. same humor. We have the same humor. Yeah, that probably. Helps. Yeah, and <laughs> drinking culture. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's one of the reasons Neighbours and Home and Away were so, or probably are still so popular in the UK, is that we feel, rightly or wrongly, we're like, oh, this is just like us, but with a different accent and with the sun, with sunshine. Um, <laughs> I think that's how I felt um, the bill. Because, um, like, I, like, in my teenage years, I used to replay all the old episodes of the bill every Saturday night, and I'd watch them <laughs> so much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Whereas even us, even American TV, it just seems like another world. Um, it's so different from from the UK. Yeah, I could talk about this for hours. But I think maybe um, maybe too. It feels much less realistic. Like even even when you're watching something that's meant to be depicting real life, the the money and so Caitlin's been watching lots of Gossip Girl lately. Not realistic. Not at realistic all. at all. <laughs> but even things like. <laughs> I'm, I'm, trying, to think, to, I'm th- trying to think well, of a realistic American Okay, TV so show. Santa Clarita Diet, not realistic because she's a zombie, but in terms of like this is your average American <laughs> family and I look at the house and I'm like, you would have to be very a, wealthy. a millionaire yeah. to, to afford a house yeah. like that in Australia. And so instantly there's a feeling of like that is not reality. It's like this fantasy land and I yeah. feel like Britain is so much more like in the movies and stuff. I I don't know if you've seen this movie, Claire, but one of my favourite movies now that I discovered on Netflix is called The Young Offenders. It's actually Irish. No, I haven't seen that. It's Irish. Okay. I think it's the perfect example of why I love – I'm going to group Ireland in to being like British (laughs) and Irish because the humour is wonderful but there's like this Mm. like realism to the relationships – and they're not afraid to be like, yeah, this is a really shit life. <laughs> like our house is shit, our jobs are yeah. shit. It's it's really shit. But but it's still like there's this beauty in that as well. Whereas I feel like America's much more yeah. like I feel like they don't I mean, it's they don't want to show the the downside and the poor yeah. side. And the, yeah, I think that's, that's a classic right. thing, like the American yeah. dream, like a you know mm. a beautiful yeah. house yeah. and like the perfect family and. You know, fancy job. Yeah, and this idea that everyone that everyone can somehow achieve that—that that there's no like structural barriers to everyone achieving that. Um, yeah, it's kind of crazy, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. So, a weird random question: Are the houses actually like <laughs> that in America? <laughs> um, well, I, so I think a lot of American TV is either set in California or filmed in California, so. I think a lot of the houses probably are like that in LA, um, but it's obviously very different. I live in a city. Um, DC is quite European feeling um, in that it's not very, there's no high rise buildings. There's no skyscrapers and things. Um, And a lot of people live in apartments and the houses are squashed together and stuff. But I do remember going to visit my um, flatmates family who live in Pennsylvania, which is just the next is it the next state up? I don't know if it's the next state up, but it's not very far away. Um, and just being really surprised as we sort of drove down the road that like all these houses were all what we would call in the UK detached houses on their own patches of land, like with loads of space around them. And like you were saying earlier, you would have to be a millionaire to have a house like that in the in the UK. And I think I thought that they all were, but then I don't know, they, they weren't because I guess there's just so much more space here. So people <laughs> can have more space. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the UK, houses like that would be so expensive. Um, yeah, and I don't, 
I don't even know where they would be. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it makes me laugh because whenever there's Brits on TV, you know, on American TV shows, they tend to be depicted as quite rich and, you know, they have, all have posh accents and they all went to private school and they all like live in Downton Abbey type houses. And those yeah. people exist, but they're a very, very small minority of the population. So yeah, yeah the American yeah. view of the UK is sometimes a bit weird too. Um, so obviously, like we mentioned at the start and you kind of talked about it a little bit, but like your move inspired by the West Wing. Uh, so let's talk about that show was, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it. Not me either. <laughs> um, but was it something that you like immediately loved and what is it that you love about that show? Um, it is something I immediately loved. My friends have been telling me to watch it for a long time um, because I'm quite political, um, but I wasn't remotely interested in American politics. I didn't really even know the names of the parties, to be honest. I was like, George Bush was president. That didn't seem great. That didn't seem to be working out great for anybody. Um, and I, I, life was really busy. I was living in London. I was self-employed running around working really hard I was involved in the church I didn't have time for didn't have time for tv and then one day I watched um I borrowed my flatmate's laptop and there was a dvd of the west wing in it and so I tried it and it was the second season so it wasn't even the beginning and I watched this one random episode which actually is quite unlike me I don't really watch random episodes of things so it must have been in the stars or something but um yeah and I just was like this tv show is unlike anything I've ever seen um the main TV show I watched at the time was Friends, which I still love. Um, yeah. But that was basically my one and only experience of American TV. And it's definitely smart in its own way. But um, but yeah, the West Wing was a whole other thing. There was a sense of I didn't necessarily understand everything I was hearing, which was nice because it was like, oh, this is kind of smart. And it's talking up rather than down to me. Uh, you know, it's assuming that I can keep up even if I don't understand every word that's being said. And people spoke really fast, which was kind of hard at the time because I wasn't so into American accents, but I learned to put the subtitles on pretty fast. Um, and the there were lots of hot guys. <laughs> and um, I think that episode and one the episode that I watched that time, there was one of the hot guys, Rob Lowe, in fact, was being quite heroic and, um, you know, saving the day for this other person. And so it was all just very, and it's also a very idealistic show. It's very like good people who love their country, working hard to make the country even better for everyone kind of idea, which is kind of how I roll. I'm quite an idealistic person. Yeah. Um, and the music sometimes kind of swells in a way that sort of plays into that idealism. Um, so it all kind of contributes to making this, this show that just kind of, it makes it inspiring. It makes you want to be a better version of yourself. And a lot, it's inspired a lot of people to go into politics, but, the, and it did inspire me politically, but it also inspired me to write, as I was saying earlier, it's um, just, it just seems to be so aspirational in the sense of let's, yeah, let's work hard and let's do things that are worthwhile and let's do them well. Um, I don't think I knew all that from that one episode, but I think it just kind of, on a gut level, all those things probably communicated themselves to me, even if I didn't know what was happening kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I've heard many good things about this show over yes, the so years, but that was way more inspiring and yeah, now I want to like, watch it. <laughs> I'll add it to my incredibly long list of oh. shows I need to watch. <laughs> so, many, so many wonderful things in the world. I am so thrilled, though, I that know. you said that you love Friends. Love yes. Friends. <laughs> yeah, Friends is a, is a long-time favourite. 
I think my only experience with watching um, DC on on film would be watching House of Cards. Oh, yeah. I haven't actually seen it, confession time, because I've been told that it's too dark for me, probably, and it probably (laughs) is. Um, Yeah, it is. It is quite dark and I've stopped watching it since the whole Kevin Spacey thing happened like I'm very conflicted because I got up to season three and I'm like I want to watch this show and I love um oh her name escapes me right now but the person who plays Claire Underwood yeah um, he is amazing and I want to watch it for her but I'm like I'm so torn (laughs) um so I might get back to it one day but in the meantime as Caitlin said there's lots of other great things to watch yeah, <laughs> but it is it is very it's there's a lot of political intrigue and a lot of scandal and stuff my mom doesn't like super dark stuff and she still found it okay but there are a few moments where I'm like oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it is good though it is good good writing Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not. I, I'm not not watching it because I'm a snob or anything like that. I think that it. Although I am a snob, but that's not why. I mean, I think it's quality TV from everything I hear. I just, I just don't know that it's my thing. So, and of course, now with the Kevin Spacey thing, I think I've probably missed that boat because I don't really want to watch it either, anyway. So, that's kind of what I say about Game of Thrones. I'm like, we're so far into it now. I'm not denying that it's not good. It's obviously well loved for a reason. Mm. But I didn't really mm. think it was going to be my thing. And now there's like, what, seven seasons to catch up on? Nah. Yeah. I've watched, I've watched five seasons and I don't necessarily think you'd love it. No, it's I don't think It's very complicated. Like, I like it, but I don't love it. I mean, clearly haven't loved it enough to watch the sixth and seventh seasons because <laughs> um, I, I just find I have to invest a lot of time into, like, understanding everything that's happening and I probably would like to watch it again from the start maybe when I'm on break from university or something but now is not the time to be like I need something light that I can yeah I can watch like one episode and be like okay cool don't have to remember necessarily huge plot twists and characters so yeah I think it's like that with some shows isn't it yeah yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. If you miss a point, you just like, yeah, I might just leave this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why comedy is so good because with comedy in general, it doesn't really matter. Like, for, I mean, I've seen Friends enough that I know what happens when, but it doesn't really matter episode to episode. Yeah, you can, you just can watch, watch any random episode. I can flick yeah. to a run on TV and watch it and enjoy it at random, mm. but still know mm-hmm. exactly what episode it is in what yeah. season and what's going on and yeah. who's with who. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. You can yeah. tell the <laughs> <hair>. Totally. <laughs> like I yeah. even realized that the other day with um the Big Bang Theory. I was over at my parents' house and they just like had like after the news or something like a rerun of the Big Bang Theory came on. And I realized I've been watching the Big Bang Theory at random for like 10 years because it's been on for so long. But you've never watched the whole thing. I have watched the whole thing sort of on and off. I think my mm. younger brother has some of the DVDs and like there's some mm-hmm. later seasons that have missed and things like that but beauty of that show is that you can watch it at random like with many sitcoms and yeah people have seen bits and pieces over years but I just realized that the Big Bang Theory has been on so long and with those shows too you don't necessarily want to watch them in order whereas you know something like the like West a, Wing you you want yeah. to watch the entire yeah, thing 
and have a full understanding of it and go back and watch this particular season where this happens. Yeah. Because I would do that. I would do that with Blue Heelers, which, Claire, if you're not familiar, is an Australian. uh, It's basically the Australian version of the bill set in a small country (laughs) town with the crime rate of the bill. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, and it'd be like, oh, I'm going to watch this season because I love when this happens to this person. Yeah. And, yeah. and you go back and watch specifically all the drama unfold. The IT crowd's a bit like that too. You can just you can go and watch any episode of the IT crowd. Yeah. And it's funny. Yeah. And it's just yeah. Sitcoms, man. Yeah, sitcoms great. are great. <laughs> anyway, sorry, we diverged a little bit. Um, <laughs> <It's> totally fine. <laughs> so you said also that the West Wing inspired you to get back into writing. Um, I'd love to yeah. hear a bit more about your novel. Um, yeah, so I will take you back to a previous novel, um, <laughs> which will make sense in a second. But um, so I was watching The West Wing. I was inspired to write, started to write. And I wrote um, a book that was partly set in D.C., even though I'd never been here. Um, and <laughs> one of not that not that that means you can't. But, you know, I think I would write a better version of that book now that I've actually lived here. Um, <laughs> and one of the main characters was basically a cross between um, one of the characters on the West Wing and the actor who plays him, or at least my projected vision of the actor who plays him based on the interviews I'd watched and things like that, um, mixed with a bit of like every romantic hero in every novel ever kind of idea. It's kind of, um, yes. So it was based, based on a an amalgam of character, actor, whatever else. Um, and then I had this like crazy daydream that he and I would write this book together, uh, would write the screenplay for the book together and, you know, whatever else, dot, dot, dot. Anyway, fast forward, I finished that book, I wrote another book, and then the next book I write is about a young woman who writes a book um, and who has this daydream of writing um, a screenplay of her novel with an actor that she loves. Um, and she has decided that they're going to fall in love over the screenplay and, you know, right off into the sunset together. So the book is about, the third book called Unscripted is about a young woman with the crush on an actor and a plan to get to marry him, basically. Um, so it is based, you know, loosely, not so loosely, interpret as you will on my own kind of experience of falling in love with a TV show and having maybe a slight celebrity crush. So, yeah. <laughs> I think that sounds like something that nearly, like pretty much everyone would be able to relate to. You know, we all have like our favourite characters and like our celebrity crushes and mm-hmm. like, you know, aren't sure if, for me, I'm just going to use my example. If we like Josh Hutchison or Peter Malark more, you know, like <laughs> yeah. we all have that. And that sounds like something that everyone will be able to relate to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that sounds yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that as well, um, you're using the crowdfunding platform Unbound. Now, Claire, I have a problem with this because when I was researching these questions, I started looking at other projects that are on Unbound <laughs> and I supported yeah. three and put my mail, like, put mailing list stuff down for like another four. So, really? wow. yeah, like, thank you, but also Not I didn't need you. to spend that money. <laughs> yeah. <like laughs> um, so it's, it's from like, 
it just looks like such an awesome platform. So I supported, so I like, I already supported some projects that had already reached their funding and I wanted to, mm. to get my copy of, um, get my copy of them. So one was, uh, by the same, or it was, I, I clicked on the good immigrant, which is one I had heard mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Um, and one which has been very successful and I do really want to read, but then I saw like connected projects was, um, rife. And it was um, essays from young people in Britain, which just sounded perfect. Okay. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> a couple of others. There was like a post-truth journalism one and yes. oh, another one. Um, no, nah, I've forgotten what it was now because <laughs> I looked at so many. That's all right. We'll link <laughs> it. In our oh, my gosh. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I, just, I find that surprising just because it doesn't really seem like you to get sort of sucked in. Into, they like, sounded so amazing. Oh, things. Common People. That's what I – it was an anthology of yes. working class writers, oh, which yes. sounds fabulous because I already bought something similar uh, when I was in the UK called Know Your Place, which is another essay anthology mm. of um, the working class, I guess. So I'm very interested in like the social history of Britain because actually, Claire, much like yourself with America, um, I just kind of wish that I lived in the UK. Yeah. It's <laughs> just to like be yeah. British. It's, I, I wish I was, I wish I was British. Um, and it's happening. Like we are saving to, to move to the UK. Oh, now. wow. Paul, like, two-year working visa, everything that every Aussie does thing. Oh, exactly. <laughs> wow, that's so cool though. Yeah, yeah, so I'm really excited for that. But, um, yeah, basically I just like to read as many British books and watch as many TV shows as possible and pretend that I live there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to Unbound. Um, why did you choose this platform and how did you hear about it? Yeah, how did you get into it? And did you fall down the rabbit hole of supporting every other project too? <laughs> Um, I have supported a couple of projects, yeah. Um, I actually forgot for, have forgotten how I found out about them. I found out about them a few years ago um, and I applied to have a couple of other books published by them, but um, didn't they didn't pick those up. Um, I So the novel that's with them, I got an agent for it in the US, but she wasn't able to sell it to any editors, even though we came really close. They would say infuriating things like, I love her writing. Show me her next book. <laughs> like, this is the book. Like, take it or leave it. Um, so I but because of the good feedback I'd had, I knew that it was a good book and I knew that, you know, it deserves to be out there in the world as much as some do and possibly more than some <laughs> published books do. Um, and, yeah, Unbound is um, – they're a tradition, they're a traditional-ish publisher. Um, once you've fundraised in the manner of Kickstarter or whatever, um, they kick in, they do all the, you know, uh, copy editing, proofreading, uh, development editing – not in that order because that would be weird. But you know, all the all the yeah. usual, all the usual editing and publishing things, cover design, all that. Um, so they're just doing things a little bit differently. So it means that they can take a chance on stuff that um, other publishers might not, because basically, if it doesn't get funded, it doesn't get published. Um, whereas in the traditional in traditional publishing, they give you an advance which you may or may not sell enough copies of your book for them to ever make that money back. Whereas here they make the money back up front. So it means they can take more risks because, you know, if it doesn't get funded, then they haven't lost anything. 
Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting model. It's exhausting. Um, crowdfunding is exhausting. Um, and of course I also have my podcast and so I'm forever asking my friends and family to like post things and give me money and all this kind of mm. things. And it's, yeah, it's hard you, work. Um, you but, with, sorry, go on. Um, sorry. Yeah. Did you struggle with, I guess, asking people to support you in that way? Like being, you know, your own PR person, your own biggest fan, your own like, yeah, let's support me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. I mean, a lot of people online are raising money because, you know, someone in their family is sick or has lost all their belongings in a fire or whatever. And I'm just like, help me support my dream of being a writer. (laughs) So it sometimes does feel a little bit weird. Um, And when I started like my first week, I emailed people and I emailed in big groups. So I emailed my university friends in a big group and my book club in a big group. And these were all good friends I've known for a long time. And so they instantly, they didn't need any more nudging than that. They just went online and did it. And the first couple of days were amazing. Um, but then what you have to do is basically personally email people and like troll through your Facebook messages and decide for each person that you're friends with, do I know them well enough? Did I know them well enough in the past? Do they like writing? Do they have money? Do they mind plugging stuff on social media if they don't have money? It, it's just, yeah. And then if they don't reply, is that because they're not interested? Is it because they need a nudge? Is it because they're trying to ignore you? Like I know that even something I really want to do, I need to be reminded of. And I'm usually grateful for the reminder if it's something that I really want to do. But like, I can't possibly tell from their non-reply whether they need reminding or just want me to go away. (laughs) So, yeah. Oh, I know. I would, I couldn't imagine it. I can barely ask people if they've even listened to our (laughs) podcast. Give us money for anything. Yeah, no, I know. I know. And I just actually, my podcast just launched. Um, I don't know whether you know about this company in Australia, but Cotton Bureau, do you know who they um, are? No. They're a t-shirt company type thing that make like merch or podcasts and stuff. But the way they operate is you have to sell a certain number within two weeks for them to make the t-shirt. So I'm supposed to be emailing all my friends and being like, buy my t-shirt. But I'm like, I, I just asked them to buy a book like a month ago. I can't do, can't do this again. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard. <laughs> wow. I love the idea, though, that, you know, not not funding the book in, until, or sorry, not paying the advance. Like you said, the publisher may never make that money back. So so they're mm. very reluctant to take a, a chance on, for example, the, the Good Immigrant is a great example. of yeah. They might be um, le- reluctant to take a chance on non-white voices because yeah. that's the mm. minority, exactly. even though it's not, but in publishing it's the minority. Um, yeah, so unfortunately they've got to think about, oh, will this yeah, sell? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. And, I mean, I think the idea that then, you know, these crowdfunding platforms open that up and open it up to more voices, one of the projects that I haven't um, actually pledged for yet but I will support is one about Mm -hmm. it's an anthology of work by autistic people in Britain and that's Mm -hmm. like giving voice to people who traditionally are locked out of publishing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so having worked a little bit with publishers and stuff like that and um, I guess your experience, what do you see as, as the benefits of the crowdfunding platforms and is this kind of the way of the future? Um, 
I don't know. I think it could be. I mean, to be honest, all the stuff I'm doing, asking people to buy my book and things, I would be doing that anyway. I'd just be doing that once a book is published because increasingly authors are having to do their own PR and their own social media and their own, you know, asking people to buy their book. So in some ways, the future is kind of heading in that direction anyway. Um I, I don't know. I mean, people are more and more, um, you know, Kickstarter and things like that are more and more mainstream these days. Yeah, it's so not so weird maybe anymore. It's, the way mm. it's, it's not weird anymore, no. Yeah. Um, the good thing about being in the US is that when I tell people about this, they can kind of assume, oh, this must just be how they do things in England, which is not <laughs> entirely the case. This is a British publishing company, but it's not like they're all like this. But, oh, that's so funny. But it is like, an advantage. Oh, yeah, this is normal. <laughs> Please give me money. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny considering like yeah. the first big Kickstarter I ever heard about was Veronica Mars movie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. American. And I always thought like the whole crowdfunding thing was American. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean crowdfunding maybe, but publish publishing crowdfunding. Ooh. I mean, I know that a lot of books um are kickstarted on on actual Kickstarter as well. Ooh. But this is a little different because it's a publishing company. So um really interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting mix because I have, I think, slightly more control than I would have Ooh. otherwise, like with a normal traditional publisher. But I don't think I have as much. Well, I definitely don't have as much control as if I was self-publishing like by a long way. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting hybrid. And I'm still I learn every day <laughs> like I still don't. You know, it's a, definitely a learning process because I know I'm quite deep in the weeds of um traditional publishing I know how that all works but this is a little different from that so I my expectation I still don't exactly know how to expect at different stages of the process I guess for the reader though it's sort of reassuring that it that the elements of traditional publishing are still there because you're still going to get a really high quality product that will go through the same editing steps as anything would process like a I guess a more mainstream publisher like with editing and yeah still getting a for lack of a better word, a proper book. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And they're beautiful. I mean, their covers are lovely and they look, you can just tell, I mean, you can tell when you pick up a self-published book, yeah. even when it's super professionally public, uh, published, there's something on the back is different. There's like the boxes aren't all in the same order and it's just different. And then often let's be honest, they're not super professionally produced and you can definitely tell the self-published. Um, but yeah, Unbound's books are very professionally produced and, you know, would look great on anyone's shelf. So yeah, I don't think anyone's going to feel gypped. <laughs> I loved it. I loved seeing all the ideas. And I, I didn't know though that, um, you know, as an author, you have to um, submit and have them accept your work. And I think, so, so you still then as a writer still go the same process as um, getting your work accepted like trying by, to get a publisher yeah accepted by a traditional publishing house like there's still a high standard for you to meet as an author yeah I mean it's hard to know exactly how high that standard is I'm sort of weirdly reassured by the fact that they didn't take my first couple of books because um you know that I know from experience that they don't take mm. everything um I I only had to wait 
about three months, which is not a lot of time <laughs> to get an answer. Um, they, When you submit a book to them, you also submit an idea of different uh, pledge levels. But I don't know how, I don't know whether they look at that and think like, oh, this person's really creative or, or not. Like, I don't know if that enters into it. Um, but, uh, but you also have to fill in a whole like, thing about your network and who do you know and how who could you get to help you and all this kind of thing um so yeah it's it's definitely selective um and then it's of course there's further selection because if people don't want to read it then it doesn't make the funding and you know um (laughs) so yeah it's a really really interesting platform like I'm just fascinated by it I'm fascinated by how it's working it's yeah yeah yeah, it's wonderful. It out. And I didn't, I had heard of The Good Immigrant and I had heard that it had been mm-hmm. kind of crowdfunded, but I hadn't realised that it was the same publisher. So seeing that on there, I was like, oh, I've heard so mm. much good things about this. They must be really high quality. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I had way too much fun looking up projects to support yeah, and sounds like it. buying three um and they're in it was in pounds too so it's double the cost in australia oh my god i didn't even think of that <laughs> yeah <laughs> michelle was like hanging her head in shame yeah because like we're saving we're also going on a holiday to ireland in two months and i'm meant to be saving <laughs> oh, oh god my books are my weakness absolutely yeah, yeah definitely Actually, Claire, that's something I find interesting. How do you go about finding British books in the UK? Are there a lot in published the US. Over, in the US? Sorry, in the, <laughs> got my um, acronyms wrong. In the US, how do you go finding British <laughs> books in the US? So some do get published here. Um, I actually, for Book Riot, do a thing every month where I write a five British books coming to the US this month. Um, and sometimes I struggle, partly because Book Riot. Um, is very committed to, to diverse books. And so for every five books, one of them at least has to be written by an author of color. And because the UK is so terrible at, at featuring people who are not sort of traditionally, you know, white, straight and whatever else, um, it's, yeah, it's sometimes hard to find those five. However, there are usually, I've managed every month so far. So there are always like five relatively exciting books that make it over, which is not a ton, but that's just the ones that I know about. Um, They often, or sometimes, well, it kind of depends, but they often Americanize British books. And I hate that with a passion. Um, So I usually don't buy British books in the US. The Americanization. Say that again. Our beloved Aussie Yeah, Aussie books. it happens yeah. to us oh, sorry, too. It happens to Australian books too. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind the spelling. I can get past the spelling, but it's when you have like a British character thinking in American words. It just, I just don't like it. Um, <laughs> so I tend to get these days. I'm lucky in that I get, beg publicists for advanced copies, and I get some. Um, but I also uh, I use Book Depository. Um, who are who will ship any book? I don't know whether they ship to the to Australia. Yes, but they, they ship do. to. <laughs> they do. Okay, so actually, um, books that I need. Yeah, cheap. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're free. The postage is free and everything, but they are owned by Amazon, which I don't love. But you know, yeah. 
if I I would love to support independent bookstores in the UK, but it means spending you know fifteen dollars on postage. That just seems a bit ridiculous. Because yes. um, otherwise, I do try and buy my books not from Amazon at least. Um, exactly. and, but then I and shipping just kills you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. crazy. And then, but then I recently discovered a website called wordery.com and they are also similar to Book Depository. They'll say, they'll send a book um, anywhere postage, or I don't know about anywhere, but definitely to the US postage free. Um, but they don't seem to have everything in the same way that Book Depository does, but they have a lot of stuff. So I'm going to be using them from now on. But I am quite lucky in that recently I've had quite a few advanced review copies so I haven't had to last year when I was just getting into my British books and the problem is I look at new books all the time and I look at what's coming out and I get so excited and I can't wait and I buy them all and like I was it was getting to be a bit of a problem last year but this year I've managed to keep keep a bit more of a grip so yeah (laughs) yeah I know exactly what you mean I think we've established (laughs) the problem we also yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Claire. We really, really appreciate it. Um, If people want to follow you, find the podcast and also support your book, where can they do that? So they can find my book at unscriptednovel.com. And... I have many Twitter handles, so the easiest thing for you for them to do is to go to at Bookish Claire, and that one is like a Twitter handle that will send you to all the other ones. If that makes sense. <laughs> Perfect, excellent, and um, and then the podcast is Britlet Podcast, and it's Britlet Podcast on Instagram and Twitter and whatever other social media networks have been invented by the time people listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I know it do seems like they're just things get added and changed all the time. It seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Caitlin, where can people find us? Well, everyone can find us at Better Words Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and, of course, this podcast, if you're listening, wherever you're listening, please give us a rating and review, subscribe, all those things. Um, and thanks again for joining us, Claire, and we'll talk to everyone next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for having me. Bye.